0: so we're starting a new series actually, and the name of the series is called "Why Christian?" question um, mark And through this series, we'll be featuring stories of people who have. Um, we have a lot of people in this congregation who have uh, found faith in a living connection with God despite Christianity or despite the state of the Christian religion these days and that that's kind of a a theme and so we're gonna we're gonna feature a number of those stories uh, this this series so I think it's gonna be a, a fun and an interesting uh, and an inspiring series for us. Uh, for starters today, Caroline Kittle is going to um, start off with like about seven minutes worth of uh, talking. Um, Caroline's trying to t- trim it down and all that. Um, Caroline is our middle school um, uh, leader. So our middle schoolers meet uh, before the service for a half hour. They'll be rebooting, uh, starting up again. People will be moving up to their classes September 10th, I think it is. So this will give you a chance to see who Caroline is an important person on our staff. Um, so, uh, and then afterwards, I'm going um, to kind of, a sense, lay more of a groundwork for the um, for this series uh, by telling the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a great 20th century theologian who called for a new religionless Christianity, which is quite a striking phrase. So, Caroline, why don't you come on up and talk? What thank happened you. to the friendliness in this group?
1: Like, oh. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. It's good to see you all. Um, okay. Um, so, so yeah, like you said, I was trying to do three minutes, and I'm always like, it's the three minutes. It's going to be like five to seven, but I'll do my best. Um, so, I, I wanted to begin my, my why Christian story by talking about a story that I learned well as a child. So, in one of the many biblical descriptions of creation in Genesis 2, we're told of a garden, a human, a genderless human at that, Adam being a play on words with dust, Adamah, and many trees. So, in Genesis 2 8 through 9, um, It's written that, uh, And the Lord God planted a garden of Eden, a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the Adam, whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we usually talk about this story um, like as if there's two trees like pitted against each other, like they're the blue or the red pill in the matrix, you know? mm-hmm. take from the fruit of, of life or the fruit of death. you know. Um, but the tree of life is planted in the midst of the garden with all the other trees which are pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so this tree of life is given along with the freedom to eat from all the good trees in the garden, except the one that leads to death. So I was taught this story uh, as a little girl with this traditional gendered twist. Um, And I was born into a religious community of Catholics, Lutherans, and evangelicals. Um, The leaders focused very carefully on right and wrong, um, good and evil, sinner and saved. There were clearly defined gender roles um, where everyone knew who the leaders were and who were supposed to serve. Um, The women in leadership were called handmaids, if that gives you a hint. (laughs) That's a clue. (laughs) Um, There were also clearly defined moral values where everyone was supposed to agree on what was moral and what was a sin. The only thing that wasn't clearly defined were um, many unspoken hierarchies. And I think these hierarchies are still rooted in our culture today that lift up some and press down others. And so during this time, my mom divorced my dad And our family was almost expelled for this unacceptable sin. And um, this community went through a painful split before I was old enough to choose to stay. But when I was old enough, I decided not to stay with Christianity. Come what may, I explored other trees. So in my search, I discovered feminist activism, and this required a clear and sometimes painful look at my own place in our cultural hierarchies. Despite our ethic of egalitarianism, there's a clear um, hierarchy of power, um, and it's almost always based on binaries. So I can just list it and you can finish it. Um, People of color or white people, LGBTQ or straight, trans or cis, women or men, poor or rich, non-Christian or Christian, the list can go on and on. And this results in certain cultural realities of who is quote and unquote blessed, and um, with fame, fortune and prosperity in our real time and who is at risk of death and physical and psychological harm. But the feminist activists that I most admired were focused on ending oppression of all groups, starting with the most vulnerable and not trying to erase our differences. To make a connection to the Genesis story, um, they eat from all the good trees of the garden except the one that has led to violence and oppression. So today, um, I think it's even harder to identify as Christian. Um, Donald Trump's rise among evangelicals and his identification as Christian make it even harder. We're getting a huge daily serving of that fruit, us versus them. White people are carrying swastikas and Confederate flags shouting the Jews will not replace us. And this hateful phrase is actually embedded in a sort of mainstream and historic Christian theology that um, supports the idea that Christians have replaced the Jews as the chosen people. Um, they also shout blood and soil, which is a painful reminder of Christian colonizers using religion to take blood and soil from people sorry, around the world and throughout history. So despite my rejection of Christianity, I've experienced what I can only describe as like, the active presence of God. And um, I've heard this quote, God speaks and listening, the dead receive new life. And I think this is true for me. God's movement in relation to me moves me in relation to God. I hear, I receive, and act. I see God's movement among the least of us. And so I've been moved to be in relation with God and the people who God loves. I experience this as setting the oppressed free and honoring our diversity. I support the Black Lives Matter movement because I know that when America truly cares about black lives, only then will all lives really matter. And I believe that God's unbreakable covenant with Israel blesses all the people, all the nations. And I believe Islam bears good fruit. By hearing and acting for the oppressed people of the earth, all people on earth will be blessed. Ending oppression is not on any one person's shoulders. And as Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. And so I'm here at Blue Ocean to hear the word of God and join with the least of us as one who serves. I don't think Christianity is the tree of life. It is one tree in the garden of many trees, I think all pleasing to the eye and good for food. Um, It's easier for me to describe religion like a field that I've sold everything to buy so that I could keep the treasure that I found buried there maybe it's the hidden treasure that i've come to understand and experience as a tree of life Um, but i don't think it's like over there or right here i think it's placed in our very midst
0: Thank thank you caroline so um I mentioned that I was going to um, tell the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer today. Um, I've been I've been studying Bonhoeffer's life for a manuscript that Emily and I are almost finished uh, with so um, it's uh, Bonhoeffer has been on my mind Bonhoeffer was uh, probably the most um, well-known or famous uh, theologian of the 20th century he was a German theologian who opposed the Third Reich and paid for it with his life he was actually hung in the Gestapo camp five days before the camp was uh, liberated at the personal direction of Hitler himself he was involved in a plot to uh, to end Hitler's life actually even though he was was uh, by conviction a pacifist, so he's a fascinating figure. And in some um, letters that he wrote in in prison, um, letters and papers from prison by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you want to get it, he was mostly uh, written to his friend Eberhard Bethke. Uh, In these letters, he was playing with a theological idea. He was proposing something that he was like intuiting or, or seeing coming into being. Um, that was very much forged by his uh, brutal experience in Germany at that time. And it was a new form of faith that he called religionless Christianity. And that phrase, religionless Christianity, has almost like an immediate intuitive appeal to us in the 21st century, how how did Bonhoeffer come to uh, propose such a thing, which he really didn't flesh out, but he he was just getting started with it. He um, he was not raised in a what you would call a devout home. The Bonhoeffers didn't go to church, even though church attendance in Germany at that time was very high. His father was a famous psychiatrist and psychiatry under the influence of Freud, still very uh, powerful uh, voice in psychiatry at that time, saw religion as kind of like a leftover pathology from a more primitive era of humanity. Um, But Bonhoeffer was like the super smart kid and he inexplicably decided to study theology, which like, he, he actually wrote his dissertation uh, on the church and he really hadn't gone to church very much by the time he wrote that dissertation which um, Karl Barth like the, the big name at that time called brilliant um, so he was really the uh, a bright and rising star in the field of theology at age 21 but even at 21 he was like a privileged kid who was living off his parents dime and he loved to shop for clothes. And there's letters of Bonhoeffer writing home saying he's traveling here and there and could his parents, you know, wire him money because he needed some more clothes. But during that period, the Nazis were coming to power. And Bonhoeffer, after his dissertation, spent a year in New York City at Union Theological Seminary. 1931, this is. And he was, he had like a bright future. Maybe he could have ended up teaching at Union Theological. He was exploring different options for his career. Um, but the Christianity that he saw around the seminary in New York, and it was like the, it was like the great uh, seminary of the time, uh, really turned him off. He just thought, this is weak. This is irrelevant. It's not speaking to what we're dealing with. At all, and he went to a church in Harlem near where the seminary was centered. It was Abyssinian Baptist Church, um, and it was led by the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Those of you who remember the Civil Rights Movement uh, knew Adam Clayton Powell Jr. It was a black church. And he was embedded in that church for over a year. He was an active lay leader. He taught, I think, Sunday school classes and all sorts of things. He really got to know the people. And that experience had a just an igniting influence on Bonhoeffer's actual personal faith. He saw a form of faith that was that was real and that was genuine. And being with the the that Harlem church helped him to like see the Bible even in a new light and he realized that God was, the God of the Hebrew Bible was the God who identified with the vulnerable people, the marginalized people, the people under the thumb of the powerful and that he had to go back to Germany and fight for a a form of faith that would actually resist Hitler who was even that time beginning to target um, various groups. He did this, and his devotion very much deepened in the next phase of his life. He wrote Cost of Discipleship, a book he's famous for in 1937. The German title of that book was uh, Nachfolge, and it just means following. And now, uh, you know, like following Jesus. And we think, oh yeah, following Jesus. But remember, this is the rise of Hitler. Hitler's title was Führer which is leader or guide and Hitler was creating a whole body of people who thought of themselves as following the Fuhrer and so Bonhoeffer is writing following and he means following Jesus and so it was a, it was a really like um, pregnant title with, uh, with controversy and kind of a risky title even in that, in that day. Bonhoeffer founded an underground seminary to train young pastors in the hopes of building resistance to Hitler in the church. But looking back, it was was basically too late by then. Um, By then, the German churches, the institutional churches across the board had all been effectively co-opted by the Third Reich. Um, Hitler wooed the German Christians with appeals to morality and you know the early Hitler was different than the later Hitler in terms of what he was revealing about his mentality and he, he appealed to the Christians using Christian language and he appealed to moral purity and the epic battle between good and evil um, noting this appeal of Hitler this, a scholar of religion named Jeffrey Pugh Describes the German church at this time as filled with great protests against secularism and godless, godlessness, against Catholicism, disbelief, and immorality. Is, like ringing any bells? For the you know the kind of message of the church, like you know our religion's better than your religion, and secularism is bad, and immorality and godlessness is what's wrong with society. This is the state of the German church during the rise of Hitler. By 1939, this is just like so sobering. Even 85 percent of the pastors who identified with the so-called confessing church. These were the pastors that wanted to resist Hitler and weren't going along. By 1939, 85% of those pastors had signed a loyalty pledge to Adolf Hitler. And that's when Bonhoeffer um, decided to participate in this this kind of extensive plot to to bring Hitler's reign to an end. He had kind of a minor part in it, but he was definitely involved. You know, I think maybe Emily mentioned this a few months ago, but Bonhoeffer also had a very personal reason to be disillusioned with the Christian religion. And it's something that has just come out in recent scholarship based on some new evidence and new sources that the biographers have been working with. And um, it indicates that um, Bonhoeffer very likely was gay, um, i I actually read the biography by charles marsh who 's a, a respected Bonhoeffer scholar and and um, Bonhoeffer was gay you know <laughs> i mean from just from just reading this he had a he had an unrequited uh, romantic love for his best friend uh, um, uh, Eberhard uh, Bethgett, who ended up being his uh, his biographer and to whom he wrote those uh, letters but you know it would have been the worst possible time to be gay in Germany. Uh, I don't know if you remember, those of you who are a little bit older, but in the 1980s with the rise of the gay rights movement in the wake of the AIDS crisis, you remember the pink triangle was the, was the sign of gay pride. You know where the pink triangle came from as a symbol? It, uh, the, the homosexuals in the death camps who were there because they were gay, were forced to wear the pink triangle on on their armbands just like the Star of David for the the Jews. So this was a bad time uh, to be gay in Germany. So you can just imagine how Bonhoeffer would have had like a lot of reason to see the potential for religion to cause harm while purporting to be a force of good in the world. So... I saw the movie in 2015, maybe some of you saw it, called Spotlight, um, oh my gosh, that's a hard movie to watch because it's based on the true story of the uncovering of the pedophile crisis in the Catholic Church in the Boston area by the Boston Globe. Uh, just through some weird circumstances, I had like a couple of connections uh, to the movie. One was I had uh, I, I met and talked to the son of the lead reporter, um, who was played by Batman? Um, whose name I can't remember. I just think of him as Batman. Um, and uh, and also, uh, there's a sister church of ours in in Boston in the Cambridge area that that um, bought a Catholic. Uh, they're called Reservoir. Now they bought a Catholic church building. Because during that period, um, the the Catholic Church had to sell off buildings in order to pay settlements. And this was a building, actually, where there had been some serious abuse of young people. Thousands of kids were involved over decades. And, you know, at this movie, you know, at the end of these movies where there's Dunkirk is like this, and any movie based on actual events, they have, like, the the later story, the words at the end that kind of say what happened they say that Bernard Law, who is the cardinal during this, one of, uh, one of the cardinals during this period, who knew what was going on, who participated in the cover-up, is now working in the Vatican in a, in a pretty cushy job. And, you know, I, I sat there through the, uh, Julia this is my wife, she has a thing, you sit through the whole credits until the very end, and all the music and everything. I sat through the whole credits and I'm glad I did because I honestly didn't know that I, whether I was going to walk out of that theater as an atheist or a Christian. I mean, it had that kind of impact on me, that movie. So Bonhoeffer had an experience like this, but at an intensity level at a, at a much different place. How did Bonhoeffer keep his faith in Jesus? Actually, deepen his faith in Jesus to the end how did it empowered him to do something pretty radical and pretty pretty amazing that we all honor uh, today Jews and Christians alike honor Bonhoeffer uh, despite his what must have been profound disillusionment with the Christian religion such that he's calling for a religionless Christianity I think there were two factors that stand out one is um, he saw real Christianity. He saw real people who had a real connection with God in that Harlem church. And I just picture him in, in prison um, in the midst of his disillusionment um, remembering those people and being inspired and encouraged by the people of Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem pastored by Adam Clayton Powell junior it 's like he got a taste of the real thing like you you know when you get the taste of something real and then there 's like fake stuff happening in its name it, it really helps you um, to like discern the difference between the wheat and the chaff and and and, and Bonhoeffer had that, although it was a, it wasn 't like a, a massive big experience of the real it was that that harlem church was was super super critical for him and many of the other people who were like minded had kind of fallen away from from his path and and so um, that Harlem church is super important that's where he met the Jesus that hangs out with the marginalized that he fell in love with and he saw the God of the Hebrew Bible in light of that church. And that, of course, is the Bible um, of Jesus as well. What We now call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. I, I, I prefer the term Hebrew Bible because old sounds like, eh, you know, whatever. It's old. Now, we're new. Um, so last Sunday, last Sunday, I came to church just in, so distressed over Charlottesville and the president's response to Charlottesville and the cowardice of so many Christian leaders to like stand up and call him out on on this moral equivalence between the protesters and those who were protesting, the protesters. And thank God Andy Deeb was speaking. Um, and Andy, you know, Andy who was kicked out of a, one Christian college for being trans after being assured that he was welcome as a trans person by some of the leaders of the college and then kicked out of his own home church again after being assured by the pastor that he was welcome there and he's giving his first sermon uh, here at Blue Ocean Faith as a seminary student, because he's a seminary student now after going through all this at uh, San Francisco Theological Seminary. I bet Andy is with uh, Emily in the, in the retreat there at Haven, I'm, I'm guessing, unless he's deep into reading already for his studies. But during the reflection time, I think Andy had us um, reflect, um, like, you know, meditatively, quietly. Was it Psalm 7? I can't quite remember. It was one of the complaint psalms. And the nice thing about the complaint psalms in the book of Psalms is they give you permission to just relax and realize if you've got any like, complaints against God, like it's okay to just voice them. And so the effect of meditating on Psalm 74 was like, I realized I was mad at God for just all this stuff going on in his name. And while I'm, while I'm kind of relaxing and leaning into that, I kind of said to myself in my head, I don't know about you, God, but I believe in Andy. And then I realized, well, God did too. And then I was like, okay, fine, I believe in you too, but just so you know, I'm feeling up more for Andy right now. (laughs) And... Like that helped me. Like that just released something in me. I was able to kind of give voice to my complaint and like and and, and connect and and it was a, it was a, that was a great sermon for me. I, I came back from uh, from church in a much better mood than I had uh, I had woken up with. See, it's the witness of people who find faith overcoming great obstacles that that really moves me. And keeps me uh, following Jesus. I also, there's a second factor though. And I think it's worth noting with Bonhoeffer. He's a theologian. He had his Bible in the, um, in the prison. And we know that he was reading and studying his Bible. And working things out in prison. Um, he was not renouncing his faith. Even though he really had it with the Christian religion. And he was kind of using that dissonance to like go deeper into, um, into the Bible. You know, a, a deep reading of the Bible that, that's beyond just a superficial reading reveals a, a pretty remarkable religious text. And, and these texts may exist in other, other traditions. I, I just don't know. The Bible's the text I know. And, but the Bible's so remarkable because it reveals. A religious text that is highly critical of religion. Actually, Um, you know, it's it's easy to be like critical of other religions. That's just like standard fare for one religion to criticize another, and for one, you know, one text to criticize the people of another text. Um, But the Bible, uh, and and there's some of that in the Bible, but um, it's written by Israel. It's the stories of Israel, and the Bible is critical of core concepts of Israel's own religious practices. Like a a really good example, a central example is sacrifice. So one practice common to all the major religions, at least in their founding documents, if not in their modern practice, is sacrifice. So here's the thing. The Bible seems to move from promoting sacrifice to later questioning sacrifice to eventually denouncing sacrifice. And this is happening among a people who are still at the time of this development practicing sacrifice as like the orthodoxy of, of their time. Um, the, the ambivalence about sacrifice in the Bible appears very early on. The first two major depictions of sacrifice in the book of Genesis, which, remember, came out of the Babylonian exile. So there are stories about a much earlier past, but informed by the experience of the, uh, of the Jews in, in Babylon when they had no access to a temple. Um, and so the first two major depictions Connects sacrifice with murder in Genesis. It's interesting. Uh, so the Cain and Abel story, you know, does this. They start out, the two boys start out offering sacrifice. Then they're, en- you know, envious about this, these sacrifices, and Cain ends up murdering Abel. So in the first appearance of sacrifice, you have a murder. And then the next big story, prominent story in Genesis about sacrifice, maybe if you can, if you're familiar with Genesis, you could uh, guess the one I'm going to, is uh, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham going up to Mount uh, Horeb. Right? Was it Mount Horeb? Um, and, and he's willing to kill his son, Isaac and this is regarded as like a great thing and he but he doesn't think of it as like murdering his son we the readers at a distance and and even those who gathered that story at their distance were regarding what Abraham was doing or willing to do with horror kill his own son and yet you know as the story turns out God kind of like Changes his mind and says, "No,, don't, don't do that," and provides a ram instead, and then we have this substitute, and Isaac is. what did Isaac do growing up, knowing that his father was willing to kill him? You know You know what Isaac's name for God is in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis? It's the fear. He called God the fear. You would too if your father had, you know, like, oh, stop, you know. So in, in the Bible, first sacrifice is presented as just something that humans do. It's not something that God, like, originates or starts. It's just something that humans are doing. And then before it is commanded, people are just doing it. Cain and Abel are just sacrificing. Then later, it is regulated by God which involves commands about how to sacrifice and and, and, and encouragements to sacrifice as well. But the commands are like, use animals, you idiots, not other people. (laughs) Um, And this phase goes on for a long time in Israel's um, history. Elaborate sacrifices are prescribed and carried out. And then sacrifices questioned by the prophets and 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 the height of this questioning by the prophets is the prophet Isaiah just like a major prophet in Israel and through Isaiah God says I don't want your stinking sacrifices I require mercy not sacrifice and Jesus, which is, this is still during the period of the second temple, sides with Isaiah over the temple priests, saying, you know, go see what this means. I require mercy, not sacrifice. Actually, rabbinic Judaism, which is the Judaism we have today, did the, did the same, and sided with the prophets over the priests. So it's like humans are addicted to sacrifice and in the Bible God is like acting like the doctor treating a patient who is physically or is so addicted to say heroin I, you know maybe many of you have loved ones who are, who are battling these opioid addictions or heroin addictions that come in the aftermath of the ap- opioid ad- addictions and they're just physically or emotionally incapable of going cold turkey and so the, the doctor supervises like less dangerous substitutes. And in that case, the doctor becomes, in a sense, the, the, the pusher, the drug, you know, the, the source of the drugs for the addicts and, and is prescribing methadone instead of heroin, for example. I don't know if they still do that today to help heroin addicts. And, and sometimes it's a long weaning process. There's some people who never get off heroin. Um... But they don't die of a overdose or they they don't get off methadone i meant but at least they don't die of a overdose of taharin so I, i picture god kind of like in this process with the human race as god is depicted in the bible some anthropologists think that the first sacrifices were human sacrifices like across human cultures that's how sacrifice started with human sacrifice And they were perpetuated because the murders, which never were called that, always called sacrifice, uh, brought peace to a group embroiled in internal rivalries that were going uh, rival. We now call that mechanism with the help of the Bible's scapegoating, right? So... Yeah, the basic gist, you've been around here, you know. <laughs> we talk about this from time to time. Emily and I are working on this manuscript and we're working it out. So sorry, people. It's our latest you know, theological thing we're processing. But um, community suffering internal conflict often turn on innocent victims thought to be guilty, right? And remember, lock her up, lock her up. That's, that's a crowd on the verge of being becoming a scapegoating mob. And when they succeed the crowd in venting their violence on a scapegoat, they get a temporary peace. So it it serves a function and then the cycle repeats. So sacrifice could well be tied up with that mechanism. So Bonhoeffer gave his life resisting one of the biggest scapegoating events in human history. And so a religionless Christianity has to mean one that renounces what has been called by some sacred violence meaning sacrifice it's a sacred kind of violence and you could say that from an anthropological point of view sacred violence is the heart of all major religious traditions something the Bible itself points to see sacred violence isn't just killing people or even just locking them up or or using animal uh, substitutes instead of people, there's a, like a profound trickle-down effect to this whole way of thinking. So any religious justification for harming others, but calling it things like upholding godly standards, is in truth like a vestige of this kind of... Um, sacred violence, this sacrificial thinking. Uh, it's rooted ultimately in the willingness to murder someone in order to keep peace in the, in the community. So, you know, that means it's also standing by silently and not objecting in order to keep the peace within your group. That's like part of this whole thing at work. Um, let the harm to the vulnerable go unchecked so our group can hang together. You, you know, uh, I just have to say it. These evangelical advisors to the president who are standing silent, most of them except one, I mean, this is exactly what's, what's going on. They know what's going on. But their silence is they're willing for vulnerable people to be harmed so that they can maintain the peace of their group, their constituent, their constituent um, group. And it's just, it's shameful. Uh, And Bonhoeffer experienced that happening to him, uh, around him, on a national scale. So that's the religion behind Bonhoeffer's call for a religionless Christianity. And I think it's why that term um, might resonate with so many of us here in in this church and I think um, just in society at large. I think what we're doing, in other words, in this church is um, connected to this. It's connected to this. And, and it's something that really needs doing in the world today. Uh, it's a world with great disillusionment with religion, but it's also a world that is, that is highly religious, as highly religious as the world has ever been. We've got both of these forces playing out and and. People need to see places where that kind of religionless faith is actually emerging. Bonhoeffer needed that Harlem church for him to get the scent of a genuine connection with God that empowered him to live the life that he ended up living. He wouldn't be the Bonhoeffer we know without the Abyssinian Baptist church. Church, the Harlem Church. Emily's at Haven, you know, talking about this stuff and whatever else she's talking about. There's a there's another church like trying to move in this direction, and churches like this are starting at the very uh, least to start popping up, Um, and it's and it's a good thing for us to be part of that of that broader um, work. You know, the reason I got up from watching that movie Spotlight in 2015. Um, still believing in God despite my anger at the church is that it was 2015 and we were just getting started and most every week we heard someone's story and there were so many stories that had this theme of like battling through religion but to find a real genuine faith connection and you know it was like for the first time, it was like I started coming to church not because it was like I needed to teach and I was a leader and blah, blah, blah. I came to church because I needed church to keep this faith that's so precious to me. And it was like my inspiration and, and uh, a really important part of my personal uh, journey it was just coming to church and hearing so many of your stories. So, we're going to take a little time to um, reflect quietly, um, and just take maybe a couple of minutes and do this after most of our, most of our sermons, um, and it's a, we hasten to add, it's a quiet time, so the normal you know, noises that groups of people make for various reasons, and babies, and all that kind of stuff, or phones going off, or whatever, is not to worry, it's, just, uh, it's, uh, it's a time of quiet, not silence. Um, yeah everyone's checking their phones everyone's checking their phones to turn them off I didn't turn my phone off for heaven's sakes okay um, so um, what, what I'm just going to suggest is that you um, take, a, take a minute to relax and if there's um, if you happen to know someone um, and it, you know, this could be someone in a distant past, it could be a grandmother, um, it could be a Sunday school teacher who kind of reached you or connected with you, or um, it could be a, a person in history, it could be someone you read about, um, someone that like you admire because of their it seems like they 've got like a genuine faith you know that, like, that, that process is so important. For all human beings because we we learn from each other and we we don't just come up with this stuff ourselves we're always learning from each other and I just think I just invite you to take that time to like settle on on a on a person or it might be a group or a church experience that you had and just like pay attention to that like think of that memory or that person as the rose and you're stopping to smell the rose um, to, to, to get the scent of the thing that they, they had. Um, so I just encourage you to maybe begin by taking a, taking a deep breath, get, uh, you know, cleansing breath as they call it. Um, relax in your seat, get comfortable. Let your mind drift to a person or a group or a figure that represents to you a, a genuine God connection. And then just take the next minute or so to remember them. St. Paul starts many of his letters saying, I thank God for you because I remember you in my prayers. And I, I think memory and paying attention to people who've been significant people in our lives is very powerful spiritual activity. Go ahead. I'll let you know when the time's up. Okie dokie. Very good.